Hello and welcome to Amplify. Yvonne, how are you? I am really well, Jonathan, particularly well today because I, I'm seeing you in person after many, many months. That's right, uh, four months to be precise. As you said, we're not talking remotely today. Where are we? We are in a little courtyard right next to the Contemporary Music Centre on 19 Fish Ample Street in central Dublin. Outside, as I'm sure you can hear in the background. So it's really great to be back in the building after a long time for me. And uh, as you said, to be recording in person together. Yeah, it's brilliant not to be in the building on your own anymore <laughs> and to have people around. <laughs> so we have a number of events and projects coming up during July. Tell me about these. So we have a particular continuing professional development program right throughout the month of July, Jonathan. And, um, you know, it's come from conversations we've had with composers and with performers over the last few months. So really responding to, to the crisis that we're still very much in for composers and performers and for the arts community. So uh, last week we, be, we begun the uh, CPD sessions with a, a clinic on Sibelius, on the notation program, and that was given by composer Ansel McDonnell. And uh, it was a great success and very well subscribed. So the uh, uh, program continues now right throughout the rest of July and uh, on uh, Tuesday the 14th of July there is a, a session about uh, creating online performances because of course there's a need for performers and composers to upskill and uh, we've been hearing about that need and they really want to put their best foot forward in terms of uh, how they play, what they write. So they're going to have a session with Owen Callery, composer and filmmaker Sean James Garland about uh, using what's available and um, you know what's available readily and affordably available to uh, create good quality audio and video uh, for online. That will be followed by, I suppose, uh, what would be the next logical session when you've done this wonderful recording and you're very happy with it. How do you monetize that? The all-important question of uh, how you get people to, to pay for your art. So Nick Roth, composer, is going to talk about that on Tuesday the 21st of July. And then how do you drive people to those online performances and hoping that they might pay? And uh, we've enlisted the help of Naomi Belshaw of Wildcat PR and uh, Naomi Belshaw Consultancy. Uh, I met Naomi many years back at Classical Next. She's uh, very skilled in this area of how composers and performers of contemporary music in particular can market themselves to uh, more general audiences. So uh, that'll take place on Tuesday the 28th of July and all those details are on the website, Jonathan. And we're also continuing our Salon series. I'm really enjoying being part of this series. Really, it's a great buzz having the chance to, to hear these solo works from our library and discuss them with the performers and with the composers. Episode five uh, there on, on Thursday evening and uh, Xenia Pastova Bennett with works for piano and toy piano. Wasn't it really a great novelty to see the, the toy piano in her sitting room? Indeed. And, um, you know, all five have, have featured such engaging performances um, by, the, by these, um, I suppose, some of the finest uh, exponents of contemporary music um, from Ireland. And what a challenge it is, you know, to have to record this at home, um, you know, maybe with your, your spouse as the only audience or your children. Um, so it's just such unique circumstances and really these performers rising to the challenge and giving us such wonderful audio and video for, for the salon. So, um, you know, Benjamin Dwyer is still to come, a real feast for guitar enthusiasts, Sebastian Adams on the viola, and then closing this series uh, with uh, Elizabeth Hilliard, soprano. So this week is the, it's the final episode of this series of the podcast. Uh, we're going to be taking a short summer break and we'll be back in September and more on this later. But fear not, we have a great episode in store this week. We have a conversation with conductor Sinead Hayes and with Crash Ensemble's Neva Elliott McGinley. And it's to Neva we turn to first, Yvonne. Yeah, you know, it did seem that uh, in this time when they couldn't perform live, that uh, they were reflecting, Crash were reflecting on, on what they'd achieved over the year and over the last few years. And we'll hear Neva uh, speak about the Crashlands project. You know, I think anything that they've put out, um, you know, during, during this time, they're known for really, you know, their concerts, high quality production, and I, they've, they've brought that into anything they put out uh, online. So um, she, she talks about really being keen to get back to the live experience and, and her and the whole ensemble missing playing with each other. You know, missing playing with each other, missing playing to an audience. Um, you know, it's what we're all missing the same thing, all just this gap. 
um, at the moment. And and I also was struck by how she was speaking about how they've they've worked with composers more recently in a collaborative way. Um, you know, not just you know a commission and and sort of saying what they want in a commission, but trying to sort of workshop with composers and, and talk to them about the work and kind of reach a, a, a stage or, you know, work through a kind of musical journey together with a composer. Okay, well, let's hear this conversation now with Neva Elliott-McGinley, CEO of the Crash Ensemble. The first phase really for us was dealing with the fallout and the second phase was, well, what do we do now in this period of time? We were looking at our archives and it really gave us a chance to kind of step back and look at what we've created over the years and actually how to appreciate it more and put it out there in the world and make more of it. We've been putting our Crashlands videos out again, our amazing videos from our Ghosts album, which was out in the bedroom community. And those videos were created by Laura Sheeran, Jack Phelan and Una Kearney. We put out a concert video of Professor Badship by uh, Fausto Romatelli, which we had um, performed at New Music Dublin. We also had a broadcast of Freestate 12 on Lyric FM Soundout. So, you know, content that we had created that was at the um, quality level that we were proud of to put it back out into the world to be seen and heard by wider audiences than the live versions originally. We decided to just keep with things that were really good quality that we would put out anyway that we felt we could stand by and rather than rushing to take up space. I certainly know that our Crashlands videos, putting them back out, we had a really good response. Maybe that was partially to do with it wasn't just about music, that it was about these beautiful places across Ireland, islands and cliffs and lighthouses and holy wells. And that was part music and part an ode to all the gorgeous places in Ireland we couldn't get to over the last few months. birthday, 20th birthday, Crash's 20th birthday and we'd commissioned 20 pieces and then we wanted to do something kind of extra special for their premiere. We didn't want to just like, oh here's a concert, here's the 20 pieces. So myself and Kate came up with this notion of Crashlands. It's, you know, one of the really important memories for me for Crash is this and now we're going to make this thing happen in the spirit of it. So there was an element of madness to it all which was brilliant because we just had to pull together and do it. And, you know, turning up on Inish Boff and, and a fellow with a van picking us up. And we're, we're all in the back of a highest van with no windows, sitting on the floor of it with our instruments being driven around. We performed on a beach as the tide was coming in. This beautiful video of the guys on the beach. But what was happening between takes is also like myself and John running up the beach with wires behind the band to get the get it out of the water but like we made it happen you know feel good lost recorded the premieres uh laura sheeran did the editing and bob jackson did the sound but the a piece the video i love from that is roger doyle's ux1 and it's just it has a gorgeous atmosphere and i mean a lot of the music i listen to outside of contemporary music is electronica there's tape with that piece it kind of brings together those two worlds for me and the experience of that tour. It's a really lovely piece. Given that you've done a lot of the 
the sort of groundwork on on this project and i know it was it was a kind of a special project marking your 20th uh, year in 2018 could there be a crashlands too uh, you know post uh, post covid or or is, is is this something you're thinking about doing elements of 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 kind of outdoor performance yeah there is we have a project that we have yet to announce it's been um we've uh, created in response to covid and the restrictions can't say too much at the moment. There's um, commissions. <laughs> There's commissions and also the um, kind of packaging of it that we're looking at the live audiences, the non-live audiences, creating gorgeous videos, creating an album that we'll be putting out on our own label. So we're kind of considering all aspects of it and how we get to people, how we get to the bigger audience of audiences of broadcast and recording can get to but also looking at the smaller niche audiences that we can get to first and foremost as a contemporary music ensemble. Also creating gorgeous moments, intimate moments for the people that are there live, because that's, um, I think, probably what we're all missing right now is what happens in a live experience that doesn't happen, despite all this wonderful digital content being out there. I mean, the live experience is something different and something that we all kind of humanly need and want. That's what performers crave, and that's also what audiences crave. It's that that sort of shared communal experience of being in a room or being in a space where where this this music is being created. When we were evolving this project, one of the things we were thinking about was that human connection for audiences, but also very much for the players that they get an opportunity to play together again, and they get the opportunity to have that communication and that thing that happens when you're playing with someone else, and not on your own in your sitting room. So we wanted to create something that is about that connection and that communication of the players, as well as with the audience. How can we get two people or a string quartet back together? How can we get smaller numbers back? And then how can we expand that to get all of us back in a room because essentially yeah that's what crash ensemble are it's 10 11 people in a room playing together so that's where we need to get to so all of what we do is keeping keeping us going keeping us live and keeping us moving back towards that point but we're lucky right. in as well that our players are very uh they're all very entrepreneurial and have lots of things in their own practices going on so you'll see lots of content coming out from them as individuals as well so there's been great stuff coming out from different players um, and they do have lots of things going on themselves as well. Luckily that they are in, in many insta- instances able to be that solo performer and, and do that work as well as, as waiting, for, waiting for us to get back in the room together. musicians and composers have been able to do some form of collaboration online are there aspects of all of this that will remain as we sort of move closer towards normality um i think so and i think it's balancing technology and humanity as well and how it's been used and 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 what it's been used for so for example even before covid happened we had evolved our commissioning process in that we wanted to it to be more genuinely collaborative we wanted composers not just to be writing a piece for a set of instruments but writing it for the ensemble specifically and the people within the ensemble and to be able to have a conversation with them for them to get something more out of the relationship for it to be a relationship a good example of that would be how we evolved our free state project we commission pieces as part of that commissioning um the composers get to work with a mentor last year that was ed bennett next year it'll be andrew hamilton and we workshop the pieces while free state's open to irish composers it's open to irish composers all over the world and it's not necessarily feasible for them to be there for a workshop or for a mentoring session so that they were already taking part on zoom and having conversations you know on various platforms with players so we had already kind of stepped into that world and now with our next project that's to be announced, we are continuing with that to 
talk and workshop with composers across platforms and build up those relationships with players before we can be in a room. We won't be saying we're not going to do things in person, but it allows us to have those conversations and have those relationships in a way that we can't, you know, if people are across the world or for various reasons can't meet. One of the things that online has, the online experience has has created, I think, it's kind of helped to sort of foster this sense of community amongst all of the musicians and, 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 and audiences involved in new music because, you know, they're, they're supporting events and they're keeping in, in touch with what, you know, what's, what, what's going on. And that's nice to see. It is. And I really like that sense of community and even the non, you know, not the content, but the behind the, the scenes stuff, like of using Zoom and having like webinars and things like that. Mm. Like I've attended Classical Next webinars with the contemporary music ensemble community internationally and them talking about what they're doing what they're not doing what their ideas are and that's been great just to to see yourself in the context of of this issue internationally and I wish actually that things like that there was more of it because I really like feeling part of of a wider community and gaining knowledge from other people and sharing what 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 we've learned and even nationally I'm in two groups that meet on Zoom, one um, every week for kind of like the chat, but it's more like a support group. And it's like, okay, what are you up to? What are we up to? What have you learned? What, you know, and helping each other with this whole roadmap to return to live performance as well. But feeling that, you know, you do have a community. I think that that's, that's absolutely really valuable and we need to do more of that. Um, it, it won't be quite the same thing because there is something that happens when you go for a pint with someone or a cup of coffee but oh, yeah. <laughs> but at least it, you know it would be it, it's a way of not abandoning that notion entirely lots of our work has happened because we went out for a pint and had a chat that we woke up the next morning we're like oh now we're doing that project you know notions having notions is I'm big into that like I I am um, I don't come from a music background, I come from a visual art background. So my work before Crash as an artist was conceptual. It is that thing of having ideas and having notions and um, bringing that to it, which is maybe a bit of the Crash Lens and our new project, having notions and making them happen. How long have you been working with Crash? Um, nearly 10 years, which seems crazy in a way like that. It doesn't feel like that long. And I think it doesn't feel like that long because Crash is this constantly evolving, flexible beast. So you don't ever get the grasp of it. We're never standing still. Like we don't have a set season and a set venue. We don't do the same thing again and again. It's like we're constantly moving to see how can we do things better? How can we do things differently and looking out there to see who we can work with. So there is an excitement. You never have a firm hold of crash from my point of view, you know, that yeah. it's, it, it, it cha- it's changing all the time. During those years, I mean, what, what have been for you some of the highlights of, of, of your work with, with the group? You mentioned Crashlands, but what about some of the other projects? What, what are you most proud of? Well, one of the pieces that I love and for me kind of epitomizes crash in lots of ways it goes back to the very first concert that we did which was a free state it was 2011 and it was in the irish museum of modern art so andrew hamilton music for people who like art i love that piece because i love it says so much about contemporary music and about crash he just creates a wonderful world that is so uniquely him and in that piece like the players just go with him and michelle o'rourke who's the the vocalist we've obviously performed it throughout the years and then recorded it for andrew's nmc portrait album in 2018 
so when we were recording that in the piece Michelle O'Rourke has to make sounds like she's puking Alan Pearson who conducted the recording he decided that the puking kind of wasn't quite what he wanted it to be we decided we would re-record the puking it was a day in my working life that I had to organize someone to go and record themselves making puking noise there's also a video on Andrew's YouTube by Jose Miguel Jimenez, um, which features Crash Not Supporters video as well. I do tend to really like things that have a visual element to them. Like another piece I love is Jonica's Asanos. And obviously I love Donica's work because it's so ingrained in who Crash are. Um, but Laura Sheeran made a beautiful video for that piece as we recorded it for our album Ghosts, which is out in the bedroom community. And I love how Donica's piece and Laura's video work together. When I saw it, I was like, oh, but that's how I think of that piece. Because I'm not a trained musician or a composer, my reactions to music are, are very visceral it's about how i feel and the images it provokes for me what laura created for that piece that feeling that i was getting from it that kind of magnetic feels of attracting and repelling and what the dancers what they brought to it it's just a piece beautiful piece of work so i'm very very proud of that Another thing that Crash has consistently done over the years, you've done collaborations with maybe slightly, not unusual, that's the wrong word, but like not, you know, non sort of contemporary music artists. So you've tried to reach out to to do things uh, across different genres, which I guess is very much of within the Crash ethos. Yeah, I love that. That's exciting. because It's like, what are we going to do with who next? Like, you don't know who you're going to meet and what conversation you're going to have that will spark something off. And sometimes that can be quite unusual for people. <laughs> the concert that we were meant to do for St. Patrick's Day Festival in March was with um, Dublin Grime artist Mango and Mathman. Um, and we first met them through a project with the National Concert Hall called Imagining Home. So we met Carl Mangan and Adam Fogarty and just really hit it off. And there was something about maybe contemporary music and Dublin grime, I don't know, but we saw something in each other and the guys are brilliant. I mean, Adam's a great producer and Carl, the way he talks about Dublin, his lyrics are fantastic because they are just very true. He's talking about the issues of being a young man in the city, kind of mental health issues, what it means to be a young Dubliner. We were to do this concert with them, a collaboration in that we were, Kevin Gilmore, who plays bass with us, was doing arrangements from their album Casual Work. We were really looking forward to that. That was going to be um, a great gig. One of the pieces we actually did with them and casual working that was to be in that concert was a piece also featuring Lisa Hannigan, who was part of that National Concert Hall project as well, a piece called Deep Blue, and I really, really love that track. I need to sleep, far hard to keep you free. You belong in this deep blue sea. You belong in this deep blue sea. I know where I go. We kind of don't want to be in a silo. And we will always be playing, you know, the big, difficult pieces of music, whether they're from Ireland or internationally, we will bring them home and play them. And you will be always seeing that coming from us. But also we'll be looking around to kind of push at the edges of what contemporary music is. And that's working with people that maybe aren't classically trained or that's doing kind of interesting collaborations, but and, and maybe that, you know, that's pulling in people that work on a visual basis so that we're looking at the entire experience that we're creating. So it's 
I think on all levels, it's, you know, pushing at the edges to see where is the newness in new music. We're not turning our backs on on what you think of as new music, but we're also looking to the for- future of, of what the newness in new music is. Finally, and this is a question that I've asked a number of people on the podcast over the last few months, and it's, are you optimistic about the future? Yes, I think that's my nature anyway. I think that's also working in the arts, <laughs> that you have to have that kind of nature, that you you know we're always going to have various knockbacks, whether that's funding or unforeseen things like this so yeah you have to be not only optimistic but resilient and flexible and determined and all of those things and I think we are that you know we've been doing what work we can during COVID to stay out there and we're now just starting to get back to players playing together so we have some players working with Saint Sister as part of the Other Voices Courage series this is their first thing back post-COVID And we are having conversations about real live dates for things. We were meant to be doing several events for the Kilkenny Arts Festival um, and the Kilkenny Arts Festival's had to reconfigure, but we are now, will be doing something live, um, something not full ensemble, but smaller that allows for social distancing and all the restrictions, but it will be real live players playing for real live people. So it's, it's coming back and we, that's where, you know, we're creeping towards towards normality you know I think we will take lots of things from COVID as well and from use of technology and from kind of looking at how we reach audiences so there we've used this time to kind of evolve again a little bit so yeah we're we're we'll be getting back in a room together and we'll be taking all the learnings with us so I'm absolutely optimistic you know we've, we've survived 20 something years we'll we'll keep going Donica Dennehy's Cannons and Overtones performed by Crash Ensemble and ending that conversation with Crash's CEO Neva Elliott McGinley. Next, conductor Sinead Hayes. And I spoke to Sinead last week from her home in Galway. Sinead is a conductor and has worked on many new music productions and projects in recent years. She's currently conductor of Hard Rain Solos Ensemble and conducted Raymond Dean's opera Vagabones with Opera Collective Ireland last autumn. And she had some very interesting ideas on and thoughts in relation to the current situation facing musicians and artists. Yeah, Sinead has uh, no want of interesting ideas, does she, Jonathan? She, she's amazing. But before we sort of talk about, about her interview and a, and a wonderful wonderful chat you had with her. You know, I really love watching Sinead conduct. She, her gestures, her, her conductor gestures, they're, they're so incredibly graceful, yet firm at the same time. It's, it's this funny and interesting combination. And she's totally in control. And, you know, when I see her conduct Hard Rain Solo Ensemble, which I have done on, on a good many occasions on, on trips to Belfast and, uh, and at New Music Dublin uh, a few months back as well, you know, she's so part of the ensemble. She's so totally part of the music making. Uh, it's just a joy to watch her uh, along with Hard Rain, um, you know, and uh, her ideas that she just, that she talks to you about, you know, about the, the paid online content and, and kind of, they're very practical. You know, a, a conductor is a, a very practical person, really, when you think of them, aren't they? And, uh, you know, this joined up thinking she talks about and, and being a problem solver, like she's, she's come from a, from a different background, let's not give the game away, but she's come from a non-music background into music um you know and uh I think you know it brought us brought me back to Neva's um, point where she was talking there about 10 people being in the room playing together and that's just that very basic essential thing that's missing and that's what Sinead is missing uh, working with fellow musicians working with the uh, on you know hard rain and, and other performers and and the validation that comes from the audience so here is that conversation with Sinead Hayes now Sinead Maybe start by telling me a bit about your background. Who are you and what do you do? 
Well, it's a, it's a very existential question I've been pondering myself over the last few weeks. I am a conductor. I kind of I've been specialising a lot in contemporary music and opera. I conduct the Hard Rain Ensemble in Belfast and... Well, we've just finished our sixth season. I started off uh, in the world of trad and then did all my grades. Went to the Royal Academy as a, as a junior junior academy for a couple of years on scholarship and then took a left turn, became a structural engineer for a while and then got to London on a, on a bursary. And uh, I think once I got to London, the whole world of music opened up to me in a way that it hadn't before. And uh, from there, did some uh, work. I was in Imperial College, did a master's in structural engineering in Imperial College, while moonlighting a lot in all the amateur orchestras I could I could play in. And then did uh, postgraduate work in, in London for a couple of really nice engineering firms, while all the time having this obsession with music and that obsession that I would definitely, definitely go back to it. And so I did. When I was 25, I went back and did my music degree in City University and with violin lessons in Guildhall in London, which was amazing. I had this amazing teacher called Gerhard Schmidt, who was eccentric to say the least, but he had played for all the great conductors. So any time I hadn't practiced, which was, you know, a fair bit, <laughs> I would just ask him to tell me stories about his favourite conductors and he would yeah, regale me with tales of Bernstein and Carl Boom and all these these amazing people. And he had played literally directly in front of them. So I learned a lot from him about music and about phrasing and about that kind of European sound and that European style. And then I finished my, my degree and I got a place on the master's course in the Royal Northern College of Music uh, on the conducting master's course there. And yeah, that was 12 years ago. So I graduated in 2009 with my second master's. <laughs> and that's it, I think, for education for a while, I think. So I'm, uh, since then, I've been, I've worked in the UK a lot for amateur orchestras, lots of choirs and some pro work as well. And then I moved to Berlin when I was in 2013. And I learned a huge amount there. I had some brilliant mentors and, you know, learned a lot about just that Berlin way of making music, which was very, very refreshing, I have to say. Given that this is unprecedented period and a very difficult one for musicians and people who are involved, you know, in the performing arts, do you think your your experience and your route to music, the work that you mentioned uh, initially working as a structural engineer, that you're able to draw on that during this period now when you find yourself not able to give concerts and, yeah. and not able to work with musicians. I mean, definitely that the hardest thing has been the lack of interaction because as as a musician, you are you're constantly bouncing off other people. And without that, we are kind of in a vacuum to a point. Okay, there's Zoom collaborations and all of that. But um certainly yeah, the engineering, you're you're trained to be a problem solver. That's my training. That's hardwired. And that's been fantastic, really, really useful as a conductor, especially for new music, because there are problems that somehow need to be solved sometimes. I found myself just looking at where we are now and where we possibly will go and just trying to find solutions in my own head for how we can get through this. And it's not even myself, because obviously conductors probably more than any other musical people have mm. been slightly sidelined in this because click tracks have replaced us <laughs> you know if <laughs> like I've seen some amazing lovely conductors online you know conducting in videos but I wonder how much the musicians are actually watching that and, and actually working off that gesture language yeah. and it it makes you reevaluate completely what what you're doing so yeah I've been thinking of ways to engage audiences so that when we come out of this our audience is more aware of what we do behind the scenes, more aware of the process. Um, I've been, you know, I did a conducting video for uh, Northern Ireland Opera just for, I think it was aimed at eight-year-olds to 10-year-olds. I think I overshot it a little bit. So it's probably more for kind of 13, 14-year-olds. But just to, just to kind of think, how can we bring our art to our audiences so that they have more understanding of it so that when we do eventually come out of this, they will see the value of it and they will also be willing to pay money again for it because Pandora's box of free music has been opened and it's it's going to be quite difficult to try to wean audiences off really high quality free content. How do you do that? How do you achieve that? Or how do you kind of create the kind of conditions so that people will be prepared to pay for all this content that they have up to this point been watching for free? We have a very engaged audience for the arts and not just for music, for all, all the art forms, for theatre, all kinds of performance art. The problem with COVID means that they just can't get to us in a way that, you know, allows us to monetize 
our performance. So I think um, I, I came up with this kind of grand plan of a kind of a cross-platform paid platform, something like the Digital Concert Hall in Berlin. It would be across all art forms and that would have a central audience that was engaged and that's willing to pay for the content because I think it's, as I said, it's a kind of conversation that we need to have with our audience. And it's it's not a kind of a, okay, we're going to cut off the supply of really high quality stuff until you pay for it. It's not that, it's a weaning off. But now, now we have to go forward because we have all these people, the backroom staff, the technical staff in these in venues. And I think if we could train them to use cameras, think about streaming sound in a, in a really high quality way, and then maybe streaming specific events to restaurants. So because there's nothing like that communal experience of a share, you know, watching live performance with other people who are strangers. And it comes with a whole kind of etiquette. So if you were, if we we're allowed to have 30 people in a restaurant gathered to watch a really high quality broadcast of something, you know, with, with good surround sound, all of that, you have that communal experience of being in an audience that kind of may be a way forward. So you could have maybe 30 restaurants, you know, all over the country that would buy in or that would that would have this as, a, you know, an event, say Irish National Opera are doing a special stream thing. And, you know, between all of those places, you might have 2000 people paying a ticket. The, the restaurants could then have food in between. You could actually gear it towards us all working together to, to just kind of, you know, unify this. So your restaurants are selling their food and they also allow the tickets to be sold or whatever and then that's passed on to the to the people who are doing the streaming so there's i think there's ways around it. if we can get the quality as you say high enough so something like we did with uh, with irish national opera back in september we had um, this hostile life which was with evangelia rigaki fantastic uh, composer and we had all these you know we had kind of four different events uh, in the space and we coordinated when each would start so people were just kind of moving around naturally there was no kind of fixed audience so i think that might be a way a way forward for for us in the kind of short to medium term you know a different kind of performances like that that'll certainly you know you can you can see then you know geographical issues being being more leveled because a lot of people live in dublin because there's a huge amount happening there you know speaking personally and i'm totally biased you know i love living in Galway because i have a great quality of life here but there's there's not as much happening here as there is in Dublin. So I mean, I tune into the the National Symphony Orchestra on a Friday night when when that's live streamed. I love that. That's fantastic. But maybe this is a chance for people to have a different life, maybe away from those those urban centres and still kind of keep their cultural identity, their cultural inner life, you know, quite rich. So that that could be a whole opportunity there. There is this kind of sense that we're opening up. I think a lot of people within the arts and within music, they're pinning their only hopes to that, that eventually we'll get back to this point of giving concerts. But what if we have to kind of retract again or go back a couple of steps? Yeah, uh, until we find a vaccine. And even when we find a vaccine, it's going to take a little bit of time for rollout and it's going to take time for people to buy into having the vaccine. So, I mean how do we make sure the ecosystem is is in a healthy state during all of that? And it's it's about, you know, providing, as I said, infrastructure and, you know, even seed funding. I'd love to see, because I'm, I'm hearing stories from Berlin of, of people being asked to play for half of the fees that they were getting, you know, pre-COVID. And it's because, you know, the bars, they don't have the capacity anymore. So maybe we need to, you know, inject some money into that ecosystem, subsidize live performance. Because as musicians, I mean, it's great to to get a kind of a benefit money, but I mean, I would much rather be doing what I do for that money rather than not. Like a little bit like the wage subsidy scheme. If we could have something like that for the arts where we're we're allowed to continue to do what we do, subsidized, just keep the ecosystem going in, in, in some meaningful way so that, you know, and, and uh, you know, I'm sure when we when we get back to it, because your your live performance chops, you, you need to keep them. It's like a muscle. You need to keep it trained, you know. Just thinking back on the recent work that you've done, tell me about some of the memorable projects and pieces involving Irish composers that you've worked on. One of the best ones we did was um, with Hard Rain. We did Greg Caffrey's opera Pamplemousse. So it's a children's opera. So we toured it around different venues in Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland opera, you know, organized busloads of, of school children to come in and watch it. with amazing director Katrina uh, McLaughlin who's just absolutely fantastic I, you know and that's that's the joy I think of 
certainly working with opera, I love just the collaboration with the director. And Katrina was great. She she would really, you know, there was a great dialogue between us and, and like the music would influence what was happening on stage. And, and similarly, we, we, you know, think about the pacing of what's happening musically. Um, so that was great. That was Greg's work. And then, of course, there was Vagabones, which was a huge part of my life last September. I can't believe it's it's, it's in September. Um, and that was Raymond Dean. That was that was fantastic. Really fantastic cast and Opera Collective Ireland. And, you know, it's so brave, I think, for a company like that. They do maybe two, three productions a year for one of them to be a huge production of a new Irish opera. It was just just incredible. And yeah, that, that was a great, great experience. Great team as well. Really, really nice uh, dynamic and you know I, I just love it when when there's a nice atmosphere in the room and you have a great group of singers who are all kind of willing to go for it and that was I, I love it because it was difficult music Acoustically, a lot of the venues we were in didn't have a pit and it was written really with the pit in mind so that you had, you know, you had the crash ensemble who were absolutely amazing. And then you had the singers kind of coming over them. And the last performance we gave was in Waterford and we had a pit and then, you know, you could get the text. You could you could really you hear everything because it was just I mean, I had I balanced as much as I could. But there, there are certain things you just can't quite yeah. overcome with balancing things down and stuff but it was that was amazing and I mean certainly a lot a lot of my job is I you know I'm an enabler that's that's really ultimately my job is is to enable enable this to to come alive and not get in the way too much so I I do tend to put the ego in the the back pocket to a large extent um until it's time to raise its ugly head you know but not 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 usually it doesn't doesn't come out that often what I do try to do is get into the get on the wavelength of the composer and if you're on their wavelength, you're kind of coming at it. You're, you're coming at it from their side, from their angle. So it's really, you know, I'm their advocate in the performance. I am enabling their music to to happen. And ultimately, I think the last word is with them. And I, with Raymond, like it was great. I, I loved it. He he was very involved with the rehearsals. And, you know, some of the things like I would suggest things and he would like, no, that's, that's a no. And I love that. And, and I would, I would, I would come to see it his way. I would come to see it his way. And, you know, in other things then like, you know, for pacing and stuff like that, if something just wasn't dramatically quite sitting, I, I would suggest some things and he was, he was incredibly flexible. So I love that flexibility. And I, and I, I try to maintain that all the time, um, you know, and, and ultimately it's their, it's their music. It's, it's their vision for, for hard rain again that we did, um, Piers Hallowell's Ground Truth and we had a recording of that and that's on a, on a CD that he has at the minute so it's 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 amazing to have our work kind of up there with the Ulster Orchestra and, and, and people like that and great to see Piers having a full CD of his of his works out there as well When it comes to working on a new piece or production with a composer, I mean, give me and maybe an insight into that process. Like, what are the key things that you as a conductor or musical director kind of need to, you know, consider when you're working in that close association with a composer on a new piece? Yeah, I suppose it's a process I go through. I mean, I, I put my engineer's hat on first and I and I, I put my composer's hat on. It's, it's kind of a dusty hat, a dusty composer's hat. And I um, <laughs> kind of I look at it and I, and I just make sure there's no problems with something is, is out of range for the instruments. You know, harmonics. Is it clear what what notes are meant to be sounding? You know, what's the structure of it? Obviously, is there a is there a harmonic basis that I should be looking for finding is there is there something I I, I try I, I unpick it I look at it I look at all the strands and see can I kind of pull a strand and something something will give way so that I can kind of get to the essence of what the piece is about and sometimes I do and sometimes the essence is not quite so clear so you work within just within its context and, and kind of find find that but I, I, I look for problems I, I always look for problems first because you know with Hard Rain we have we might have two hours in total to get a piece together so 
we need to hit the ground running. It, it needs to work. So what I do then is I, I usually have a, have a Skype session with the composer, um, have a chat through the piece. Anything I've found that I think might just be problematic, I'll clarify it, um, work through that with them, maybe then get a revised score, revised set of parts, and then go to the next step, which is then just really learning the piece and making sure that I know how it's all going to work. But I, th- I think the joy of working with Hard Rain is because we're they're all soloists. Um, like we're it's 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 just an equal partnership between between them and me really so they all have their own ideas and we kind of form this thing from you know the rough hewn article to the to the finished final product and that's and it's amazing that you you kind of you work in a cerebral way to a certain level with it and then in the performance during the rehearsal you're building in that you're building the passion you're building the heart you're building all the emotion into it as well but only you know it's only half-baked and then when you get to the performance, that's when you need to just bring it to that next level and just really find, you know, what that's what that's all about. Music by Greg Caffrey, performed by the Hard Rain Solos Ensemble. And for a list of all the music used in this episode, please see our show notes. My thanks to guests Sinead Hayes and Neva Elliott McGinley for their time. And so, Yvonne, we come to the end of the current series of Amplify. It's been a great journey. It indeed has. 24 episodes. There have been some amazing insights into music making from composers and performers and promoters and everybody active in new music um, across the island. I think since the COVID-19 crisis struck, Jonathan, you know, and maybe particularly during the lockdown, I felt through the podcast that we were able to reflect on how the the sector was living through this really unusual time. And I know a lot of the new music community, and you've had the feedback as well, really engaged um, with Amplify and you know, maybe took some comfort in knowing that fellow musicians um, were also being challenged, you know, in different ways. They're all there to, to listen to um, on our website, cmc.ie forward slash podcasts, um, to listen back to at your leisure, as they say, right across uh, the summer. So we finish now with a short segment prepared by our colleague and uh, fellow podcaster in crime, Keith Fennell, with highlights from some of the composers and musicians we spoke to during the series. If you haven't heard these earlier episodes, as you say, do go back and listen to them. They're all available. So from me and everyone in CMC, thanks so much for listening and for all your support over the last nine months. We really appreciate it. We'll be back with a new series in September. Until then, bye for now. We're being driven out of of Dublin, not just composers, but like artists are being driven out. And it's that question of do you kind of stay and fight in in terms of you know rattling cages or attending protests and it's really serious um i think at the moment and i'm feeling that culture in general in dublin it's it's kind of i feel like it's becoming more of a city for the visitors you know the country's doing well i suppose but it's it's an artistic recession now The thing that has happened, I think, over the past 10 years in particular, with so many new channels of listening and of experiencing, is that many of these channels do not come with the inherent support of state funding. Its challenge for new music is that it ultimately binds a value of such experimental sound practices with the inherent support mechanisms that are there. And when you remove those, you break something. We were sort of joking that the very last part of the opera, I sing this text where I say, take the long view, the sun will explode in five or six billion years. The one thing working on this opera taught me was, I suppose, the scale of the universe, the scale of deep time that we're in. It showed me it's just ludicrous that we can't all be better to one another. Like we're here for such a tiny, tiny, tiny brief moment on Earth. 
It's so fast, it moves so quickly. The snow is melting. I think there's a generally accepted notion that as the audience currently stands, and it is indeed small for new music, really, when we look at it in absolute terms, that there are tribes. And one of the jobs, I think, really, of something like New Music Dublin is to corral all those tribes in one place and get them to move from one thing to the other. There's this dance between the social situation and the music. You know, music constructs its own tribe quite frequently around it. Now, you know, not may not need, in some senses, explicitly a tribe like punk music or you know, fans of Slipknot who wear masks or whatever happens to be. That is a, a definitely a tribal thing. There are tribes, whether they're identifiable from externally or not, but you know you're going to see the same sort of people at particular gigs. The aim of New Music Dublin is to basically crunch all those together. Had been looking at them for over an hour. In a way, I consider, this is borrowing a, a little phrase from Sam and Rushdie, history to be contested ground. You know, and then we, we make of it what we will. One thing I like about the stage version is the way it ends in this kind of ambiguous, almost light. There's almost an optimism, but it's a bittersweet optimism. It's got a little sting in it too, and I love the ambiguity of that. For some people, they don't really see the issue. And this is across the world. I'm not just talking about Ireland. You see a lot of uh, music brochures, say, with pictures of women all over them. And somehow that kind of sells. And then when you look a little bit further into it, you realize, oh, that woman has like a five minute uh, flute solo on a Wednesday lunchtime concert. Um, she might be at the front of the brochure, but she's not main stage Friday night. I suppose the thing about uh, composers, I mean, any people of my generation in Northern Ireland, the one thing we can say is that we're probably the only composers in Western Europe, I wouldn't speak for the whole of Europe, but in Western Europe, who have grown up with some sense of what armed conflict is about. Mm. And inevitably that has a shaping influence. I think more about it now than I did then, because then I took it for granted. When you're young, you do. Being involved in the free improvisation world is so mind-opening. I mean, for me, it feels like I'm heading into some strange forest and searching out as yet undiscovered orchids, and I'm bringing them back. And I can bring them back and study them and then put them into notated processes. myself when I'm creating something with electronics it's about kind of really honing every detail and hearing it immediately and the immediacy of working that way rather than something that's score-based and, and kind of gets sent away and then you know that sort of very different process and I mean I do enjoy the collaborative aspects of all that and, and working musicians but there's something about the combination of let's say acoustic and electronic sound that always has fascinated me and finding connections between those things. 